Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Livebook's first launch week is going on at the time of this recording. This is their first ever really launch week where they're wanting to have a new announcement or feature or sharing something that you can do with Livebook from Monday through Friday. So we're recording this on Tuesday, so we're just going to share a little bit about what's come out so far on Monday and Tuesday, and then we'll look forward to the rest of it in the next episode. So first of all, it was Jose who shared some of these things, and we have links to these in the show notes. There are links to two different blog posts on the Livebook blog. For day one, today we show how to deploy notebooks as applications, plus other quality of life improvements arriving in Livebook 0.9. So when they say deploy notebooks as applications, it's like, what does that mean? Does that mean like live book the installer? No, this is actually something really interesting. He says, today we're thrilled to announce the most prominent feature of this new release, the ability to run your notebook as an app. And really that still doesn't make sense. So you have to watch the YouTube video, but I'm gonna try and describe it. Because in there, what you're doing, you're setting up a live book and in your notebook, you can configure, like in your normal Livebook cells, you're configuring a chat server. And then over on the sidebar, you can run it and it sets up a separate URL with a slug endpoint. And then you can go over and open more windows. So you have multiple windows. And now you have like Bob and John who are talking to like real-time chat interface, but it's being hosted out of Livebook. So like that's what they mean by when they say it's running as an app, right? You're like, you have a Livebook, is running its own little app interface and server that you can interact with with multiple browsers and do it all like concurrently with multiple browsers like you normally do with LiveView for chat. It's like that built into Livebook is really interesting. Yeah, so day two came out just before we started recording. And this one's focused a lot on the new machine learning capabilities that now exist in Elixir and Livebook. They start talking about neural networks, They show how you can run different machine learning models. They show little clips of of doing some chat with the bot and asking it some questions, which it just never has answers to. Like, (laughs) what's your favorite book? It's like, I don't really have any books. Well, what's your favorite music? I don't really have a favorite song. I don't know. It's funny. But, you know, I guess it's true. It doesn't listen to music or read books. Maybe that's that's fair. (laughs) But something that's really cool that they talk about is the capability of distributing these models or these networks, I'm not into AI yet. So forgive me for my lack of understanding in the exact wording here, but they're distributing across machines and multiple GPUs. And I think that's what's going to set things apart here. So as our feature set is on par with Python, this is going to be something that's going to really set things apart and hopefully bring people over in troves because running these things concurrently could definitely speed things up. That's really cool. Yeah. The blog post on this one is really helpful because it has a number of different videos showing little like one minute clips of interacting with these different neural network models. And some of them I had not seen before, like one's called punctuation, but it is not the type of punctuation that you expect when you talk about like English grammar and like, where do I put my commas? Where do I put my periods? It's not that. It's more about tokenizing a statement and identifying important things in it. And so they're showing how in Livebook, you can color 
code those little tokenized pieces and, and little graphics to indicate what they mean or their significance. Totally worth checking out. But yeah, just to echo what you said there, Cade, it's the whole idea of saying that you have the ability with Elixir to run a neural network model concurrently on multiple GPUs or across a cluster of machines. Like that's just not happening in the Python world, at least not the way you can easily do it here. So it is really exciting to see how Elixir has a super strength in that area. And continuing on with the AI theme, Sean Moriarty attended the Denver Online Elixir meetup to talk about Bumblebee and building a conversational bot in Elixir. He went into the details of how he worked with Teller.io to build a bot that could respond to common questions that they get. So somebody says, how do I sign or verify the the webhooks? Well, that's a maybe a pretty common question with a pretty concise answer. So they trained up this bot to understand all these questions and say, well, here's how you do it. And here's the docs. I think that's an awesome idea. If you're a company like Teller or Stripe or something like that, to just like have this bot that could field all of these common requests. Anyways, it's an interesting concept. It was a hundred percent Elixir Bumblebee. And they say that it was, it was around a hundred lines of code at the end. That's awesome. I feel like Elixir is really getting there with all of this machine learning stuff. I don't fully understand it yet. So that's something that I definitely want to be digging into. But Mark, you were saying that you used it. What was your experience like? Yeah, so I had a fun time. I pulled down the latest live book and was running it because I wanted to try it out 0.9. As I was running it, I wanted to see some of these smart cells. And I pulled up the new neural network models that are built in and available there. And I wanted to try the conversation bot. I just want to see what can this thing do? So here, this is roughly what happened as my first example. So I pulled it in and I I chose the largest model because like you have different model sizes that you can download. I I wanted the biggest one so it could like say the most stuff and and be the most interesting. And I said, tell me about chickens. Because I'm like sitting here thinking, what what do I even, how do I start a conversation with the bot? Like, so I want to see, does it, does it know any facts? Can it say like, oh, it's a bird, anything. Tell me about chickens. Bot. I am a chicken. Me. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Bot. I am a chicken. Me. That sounds interesting. Tell me more. Bot. I am a chicken. Nice. That was all I got out of it. (laughs) CPU 100%, like 500 gigs of RAM. Just (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And really, so I was running this on my local machine where Livebook does not have access to the GPU. So it was running CPU. And that was really slow you can see the difference that the GPU makes in that situation. Like my CPU was pegged and I had like three gigabytes of RAM. I chose the largest model too. That was my own doing. And that maybe that made it slower too, for all I know. That was interesting. So I guess why I'm sharing that is because I think when people go to play with it, they might be a little bit surprised that maybe there's a little bit more to it than is first obvious. And it's okay. We're, we still have some space to learn about this and how we can interact with these things and use these tools. And I think in order for something like this to become valuable, you have to be able to train the model on your data set on what matters to your company, like Sean Moriarty was doing with Teller. So that's the other key piece there. And next up, Exonerate is a new JSON schema compiler for Elixir and version 0.3.0 was released and it's now available on Hex. The library was created by Isaac Yonemoto and Exonerate is described as an opinionated JSON schema compiler for Elixir. So what does that mean? 
Well, it means it will generate Elixir code and data structures to correctly parse JSON from an API given a schema from the publisher. So that means if you are working with an API where they already provide a JSON schema to define their interface and what kind of data structures they're returning and what they require in their requests, then this tool can generate the Elixir code to communicate with that API. Isaac highlighted that one of the most popular APIs right now that has a JSON schema is OpenAI, which is the interface to ChatGPT 3.5 and 4.0. So if you wanted to create a service that integrates with ChatGPT, this is a great place to start. It'll build out all of the pieces and the code that you need to actually talk with the service. So I guess what sets this apart, because there's there's other JSON schema, I don't know, parsers or whatever, validators, Mm -hmm. but this kind of works like Elixir templating in the sense that it's compiling the code or the functions that it's going to use to run those validations so that that work is done at runtime. And it's just a quick, maybe pattern matchable function rather than at runtime, bringing in that JSON schema, doing the work to check it. That's all done at at compile time. So I guess that's what sets this apart and, and perhaps makes it so much faster. I know he has a bunch of performance metrics on there. So it's showing how it's going to be fast. That's right. Some of the performance metrics were showing the compiled version versus the previous approach was like 300 times faster. So it is an interesting way to do it. And I was looking at some of the other libraries that are available online right now on Hex. And a lot of them are more of validators, like you were mentioning, like JSON schema validators, which this goes beyond that into generating code. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps. With many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app, and a powerful CLI, it's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. Next up, Ecto 3.10.0 was released. Jose teases that it has some exciting features that are going to enable some better interop with LiveView. I was looking through it, and I honestly couldn't tell what is so exciting here. And so I'm excited to see what this means and then Chris McCord teased again that he's going to be showing off some of these features in an upcoming Elixir EU conf, saying that dynamic or nested forms are going to be awesome and they're going to be next in the live view release. And so that just boggles my mind because I'm looking at this change log. They should call them change sets. Somebody said that in Twitter. They said they should call change log change sets. They totally should. <laughs> I'm looking at these changes and I'm like, I don't understand what this means. So I'm excited to see this talk and I'm excited to learn more about this. But what were you thinking about it, Mark? I agree. Like Chris McCord teasing that dynamic nested forms with Ecto, that that's going to be cool. But yeah, when I was looking at this, I was, I was seeing one of the new features is a function called field missing question mark. You know, looking at the docs, I see that and it's like, well, I know one of the things we're talking about with live view forms is they're wanting to not send up the entire form contents on a, every validation action because those forms could be really large. And so maybe then the field missing becomes more relevant in that situation. But it's like, yeah, you're right. It's not obvious how this actually helps with live view. But I did update to the latest 3.10 when it came out. And I did that yesterday. Just as a little feedback and heads up on what this meant, I had to update Ecto, Ecto underscore SQL and Postgrex. One of the things I noticed is that the schema field slash three function is now more explicit, which means... Normally, you'd say, you know, field, colon, and name or title or something, you know, the name of the field, and then the type of the field. And then you could do a comma and like a keyword list of other options that you'd pass in. 
Now it's more explicit where if you pass it in an option that it doesn't support, it will complain and give a compiler error where before it just ignored it. Because sometimes I would start with my migration and I would copy my migration after I defined the table fields and I'd copy that into my schema and start from that and just tweak all the things that I wanted to. That way I don't forget a field or something. But what that meant is sometimes I'd have leftover bits where I might have field colon name and as a string. And then I'd have an option that said size colon 30, because maybe it's a 30 character string in the database. And the Ecto schema ignores the size 30, but it didn't complain before. Or just as a habit I had from coming from Rails, I would include required colon true on some of my options. And those were not supported, where I'd missed a null colon false from a migration copy. So anyway, I had like 18 files, 18 schema files that I had to update just because I had bad data that was copied in there. And really, it didn't cause any problems. But the problem was, is it would be confusing because if you looked at it and you saw these things there, you might think they were doing something and they weren't. It was just dead code. So it'd be misleading. So that was the problem. So with this latest release, it's very explicit about that. And it will complain with a compiler error. It's not breaking any backward compatibility. It's like clean up your crap is what that was telling me. That's a good change. That's a good change. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Next up, Erman Valesco continues sharing short tips. And this week we noticed he shared a tip about interacting with LiveView in the browser console to enable debugging features. So in this video, he shows how you can call livesocket.enableLatencySim. You can pass in a value and that will enable a delay of that value that passed in, and it will give you a nice way to see and feel what a user might be seeing and feeling when they are not so physically close to the server like you are when you're doing local development. And you're like, wow, LiveView is so instant and fast. It might not be the case when somebody's a little further away. So super great tip. Make sure you watch to the end of the video because he shows you'll probably want to disable latency sim after you're done. Otherwise, you'll just be like, everything is so slow as you continue to go. You just like deploy it up to prod and everybody has a... (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, it doesn't do that. It's only in your browser, but yeah. And next up, Mike Clark with pragmaticstudio.com has a video-based Phoenix Live View course, and it was just updated. We love seeing when people put effort into training tools like this. And this is the kind of tool that can be really helpful when you hire some new people who aren't already fully up to speed on Elixir and Phoenix. And you maybe want to help cross-train a little bit. And having resources like this are super handy. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, they've put out a lot of great courses. I remember watching their original Elixir one, and I, I really liked it when I was ramping up on Elixir. Next up, the Image Library released a 0.28.0 and Point one as well. This adds some new features from community contributions, features that are powered by NX and VIX, VIX. It shows how far numerical computing and image processing has come in Elixir lately. So there's, there's a couple new functions here that they point out. There's a warp perspective, which applies a warp transformation. There's a straighten perspective that looks like it kind of straightens images or maybe undoes the opposite of a warp perspective. Then there's a crop which gives you the ability to detect rectangles from the warp perspective and crops them to that rectangular region. We have a link in the show notes to an Elixir forum conversation post where people were talking about it and sharing images. So that's where it really helps to see what's going on. So like you imagine I take a picture of my computer screen, but at an angle where it's in the picture, the monitor is skewed. 
with warp perspective, it can take that skewed rectangular shape of the, my monitor and straighten it and give me a picture of it looking as though it were taken straight on. And they show like doing that with storefront signage, like a big sign over the front and being able to straighten that. And then because it can detect rectangles like that, then that's what the crop function does is it's like, oh, I can automatically detect it so I can straighten it and crop to that rectangular region. So, you know, if if you took a picture of like you're in a museum, you took a picture of the little placard that explains something, it could just crop down to just that section that the little placard yeah it's actually really fascinating to go through that form thread and see some of the pictures because they like take that storefront that's like at an angle they replace that image with another image that fits perfectly the perspective of the angle that they're taking the photo from in real life it's, it's fascinating it's really cool stuff yeah it's like that's the kind of stuff you could do before in photoshop but you're doing it manually you know you're the, the skewing and and dragging the little points and like this will just automate it that's pretty neat And next up, Chris Bell at Knock Labs shared a new library that was released called One and Done. So it is a tool for creating APIs that are item potent. We have a link to the blog post where they give a lot of background on what a lot of this means and how this library works. But just to share a little quote from that, an item potent request is a request that can be safely repeated without unintended side effects. The request may be retried or even sent multiple times in parallel the result of the request will be the same regardless of how many times it is sent. If you've ever thought of that situation where a user double click something and you don't have any prevention of that in the front end and it triggers the event twice on the API, having an item potent request means the first time it will happen and do it, the second time it will ignore it and not perform it, but it will return the same response from the first request. So the UI is none the wiser but you're not getting multiple actions being triggered on the back end. So that can also happen if you have background cues. Maybe they didn't get the response or weren't able to record that something was done and they're trying to do it multiple times against an API. And so this helps prevent that kind of problem. So it's a nice library to be able to bring something like that into your own API and do it pretty easily, it looks like. Yeah, it's a cool idea. And it's definitely always good to have that kind of stuff built into your API if you're doing... Stuff that you don't want to happen again. (laughs) Very cool. And last up, MPEX NYC. Just a reminder that it will be on June 9th. It's a one-day single-track Elixir conference held in Brooklyn, New York. Well, that's all we have for the news today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.